God on the Move. The more I talk about with people around the world, I, I think it's something that happens in lots of places, is if you have dynamic children's ministry, children come and are involved as long as they're children, and then you say goodbye to them, and they are not integrated into the life of the church. And so what we've seen is that ministry to children really needs to be ministry with families. The Republic of Albania is a country in Southeast Europe which has undergone tremendous changes in its near and distant past. Unfortunately, the also often very polarized media representation of Albania as a country of criminals, illegal immigrants and drug traffickers leaves people with a very distorted view of a nation that is otherwise known for its rich history, stunning coastlines along the Adriatic and Ionian seas and its beautiful natural landscapes including mountains, rivers and lakes. It also leaves out the wondrous works of God and a growing desire to bring the gospel to all Albanians and to make them disciples of Jesus. You are listening to God on the Move, a Lausanne Movement podcast, and this is a story of Orthodox mission in Albania. The voice you heard earlier is Nathan Hoppy. He's a board member of the Lausanne Orthodox Initiative with wide influence in the Orthodox churches and currently an Orthodox missionary in Albania. And this is his story. My name is Nathan Hoppy. I am from the United States and have worked now for 25 years in Albania. I'm sent from the United States by the Orthodox Christian Mission Center, which is abbreviated OCMC is the way you usually see it. And I'm supported by Orthodox church communities and individuals from across North America and serving in Albania under the direction and in the context of the Orthodox Church of Albania. So it's important for us as Orthodox missionaries that we're sent by the church here in North America, but in Albania, we are not parachurch actors. We are fully within the local Orthodox Church and serving the local Orthodox Church there. I was not born into an Orthodox family. In fact, my parents were and still are evangelical missionaries. So I was born in Colombia, South America where my parents served with Wycliffe Bible Translators. So I grew up and spent most of the first 12 years of my life in Columbia, South America, then came to the United States for high school and college. And it was during my studies at Wheaton College near Chicago that I was studying church history and began to discover the first 1,500 years of church history and learn about the life of the church before the Reformation. And during that, I was surprised to discover the importance of the sacraments for the main reformers, and particularly for the sacrament of the Eucharist or Holy Communion. In the tradition that I grew up in, it was not particularly important, and there was sort of an understanding that it was a symbol, and whatever it meant, we were sure that Christ wasn't really physically present in the Eucharist. So the surprising thing for me was that for especially Martin Luther, but other reformers, that Christ was very much present there. And so that was a surprise for me and really an impetus to look at my own Christian faith and what I believed and to think about the first 1500 years of church history. And I discovered that actually Christians throughout the first 1500 years really believed that Christ was present in the Eucharist. And so that gave me a nudge in a, a certain direction of reorienting my Christian life 
and the beginning of a process of beginning to attend a community in the Chicago area that at that time was called Christ Covenant. It was a small independent church community, but asking questions about the sacraments, about Christian identity, about apostolic succession. And in that process, we felt like that Christ had founded the church with an apostolic structure that in the first centuries of the church, there weren't independent local congregations that all in the whole church, they were interdependent and that there was this interconnection through the ties of apostolic succession. And as a community, we said, we'd like to be part of that. How do we join that? And we're searching and examining different church traditions and eventually felt like that we could best find our home in the Orthodox tradition. So our whole community became a parish of the Antiochian Orthodox Church in North America. So during that process, I also was finishing college and had grown up in the mission field. During my early college year, high school and college years, I was pretty sure that I wasn't interested in serving as a missionary. I thought it was a great thing that my parents did, but just felt like that it wasn't for me. But in the early years of going through university on the American system, there's still a lot of freedom to choose direction once you're in university. And so trying to figure out what I was really going to study and what I was going to spend my life and career on. So I asked myself, you know, I'm going to do this for a long time, 50 years probably in a career. What would I really like to spend those 50 years on? And also, what will I be happy 50 years from now to say that that was worth investing my life for? And the more I thought about that, the more I really felt like sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with people who would not hear it otherwise, would be both something that would be a meaningful process of life, but a, a worthy investment of life. And so really felt a sense of being called on two missions. But as I approached the Orthodox Church, the Orthodox Church in North America was not doing much in missions at that point. And so there was the question of how can these two streams that God seems to be leading me in come together? And eventually I felt like becoming Orthodox is the thing that is immediately in front of me. Being a missionary is another step after that. And so I did join the Orthodox Church, as I mentioned. And then after that, did discover that there was a fledgling mission center here in North America, the Orthodox Christian Mission Center, and God opened up opportunities for my wife and I to go and serve in Albania in the, the process of the resurrection of the Orthodox Church of Albania. So for me, going to Albania, I had that process that I talked about, about seeking God's directions about being Orthodox and then how to be involved in missions. For my wife and I in 1995, when we were in the process of becoming Orthodox missionaries, we received a call and said, would you be willing to come to Albania and help with with this process of the rebuilding of the church there. I received that phone call when my, my wife was out, her name was Lynette, and told her when she came home that day, said, I had a phone call and they asked if we want to go to Albania and serve as missionaries. And her response was, yes, let's go, but where is Albania? So we very much had that sense of openness and, and readiness to serve. Of course, learned about Albania and were eventually able to go to Albania in 1998. The initial main thing that I was asked to come and teach in the theological school in Albania and training young people, both men and women, to serve the church in a variety of different roles. And so that's something that I've been doing for the last 25 years. 
My wife, Lynette, was involved in a whole variety of ways, but especially involved with publications and helping the church to tell its story in print and to provide materials for sharing the gospel in Albania. Maybe you feel like Lynette and don't know where Albania is or anything about this country. Albania shares a border with Greece in the south, and if you swim about 50 miles across the Adriatic Sea, you'll end up in Italy. But more interesting than geography is Albania's history. And here's a brief overview from Nathan. So Albania actually is a fantastically interesting place for Christian history. It is a place that, according to tradition, the gospel was preached within the first century. And it's one of the interesting things traveling around Albania. There are many archaeological sites, many paleo-Christian archaeological sites, Christian ruins all over Albania, giving a tremendous tribute to the depth of Christian history in Albania. But the other thing is that they are Christian ruins, and Albania has had a very challenging history of difficulties and persecutions. So when East and West divided, it divided through Albania, and until today, the Christians in Northern Albania are primarily Roman Catholic, and the Christians in the South of Albania are primarily Orthodox. And so there were sort of 500 years of that division. And then Islam came to Albania in the 1400s. And with the conquest of Islam, there was the long, slow history of anti-Christian persecution. And by and large, the Islamic governments did not persecute Christians in ways to force them to convert en masse. There was pressure generation after generation. And the challenging thing was that if in any generation a head of a household converted, all of their descendants forever would have to be Muslims. They no longer had a choice. And so under that pressure for centuries, about 70% of Albanians converted to Islam. In the beginning of the 20th century, when the Ottoman Empire fell and Albania proclaimed its independence in 1912, it was a country that was a predominantly Islamic country in Europe, with about 70% of people being Muslim, about 20% of people still claiming their Orthodox heritage, and about 10% of people claiming to be Roman Catholics. Then we had the very difficult period with World War One, turmoil between the wars, and then eventually in 1945, the communist government coming to power and beginning to persecute the church. And the church was persecuted in Albania, like many other Eastern European countries between 1945 and 1967. And then in 1967, a unique step was taken in Albania, where the state declared itself officially atheist, where all religious belief and practice was illegal. And so all religious buildings, properties were confiscated, including for the Muslims, was an equal opportunity persecution. All clergy were forced to stop serving, and it was officially no religion in the country between 1967 and 1991. When freedom came in 1991, the Orthodox Church had been completely destroyed in terms of its official structures. None of the bishops survived. Only about 20 clergy survived, but they were all of advanced age and, for the most part, in poor health. And so at that point, it was the opportunity for the beginning of a rebirth. But there was a real question of what will happen next. And thanks be to God, the ecumenical patriarchate made a very important decision. They asked Archbishop Anastasios, who had been serving in East Africa, to go to Albania as an exarch and simply see what was left in Albania after the 
these decades of persecution where there had been almost no communication from the outside. And what the Archbishop found was a place where all of the religious structures were destroyed, but where many thousands of people had kept faith secretly. So he began to do liturgies to help the church to be reborn. And eventually through a complex process, he was elected as the new archbishop for Albania and the autocephalous church of Albania was relaunched in 1992. So, you know, Albania over the last 32 years or so since freedom came has really been on the express track to becoming part of Western Europe. The economic development there has been just breathtaking from new highways, new building. When I go out on my balcony in Tirana and look around at the city, looking around and trying to find buildings that were there 30 years ago is almost difficult because so much is being built. There's just so much growth, so much happening. But that's been happening both in the economic realm, but also in the spiritual realm, in the personal realm, the psychological realm of people. And so we really have gone from being, in a certain sense, pre-modern to post-modern in 30 years. And it's been a very challenging process for people. I think a lot of cultural dysphoria because in 1991, there was an incredibly uniform culture, continuity of life, all sorts of things. And then suddenly everything has changed so fast. In Western Europe and North America, we feel like things have changed so fast. But in Albania, the change that we've seen in the last 70 or 80 years in the West has happened in 30 years. And so people in the early 90s flocked back to the churches, flocked back to religious institutions. They wanted to know what this is that the communist government deprived us of. And if the communists tried to take it away from us, probably it was good. And so we want some. And so there was a real resurgence of faith in the early 90s. Now, in the last couple decades, there also is the tidal wave of post-Christian secularism from the West coming into Albania. And so there's all sorts of different streams in that. Tremendous things have happened in the rebirth of the church. But now we're really coming to be like Western Europe in so many ways. The religious, the spiritual landscape is so much more difficult than it was 15 or 20 years ago. There isn't the kind of openness for the gospel. It's much more like it is in so many Western European places. And so in that sense, I would say that the answer to the question is the same as it is in Germany and France and England. How do we reach postmodern or post-postmodern secular people in Europe with the gospel? This question made me curious, and I wanted to know what their ministry looks like and how they responded to the fast-paced developments during the last 30 years. Our ministry in Albania has evolved over the years. Albania has changed a great deal. If you had visited Albania in the late 90s and came back again, you would find a very, very different place. And Albania economically has come from very, very depressed situation that it came out of under communism to really becoming a modern Western European country. And with all sorts of changes connected with that. So not to try to go into all the phases in history, but to say that over the years, we have become increasingly persuaded that effective Christian ministry has to be based in local Eucharistic communities and families. And those things connected together with Gabriella, in addition to teaching at the theological school and a variety of other things, we lead the children's ministry for the Archdiocese of Tirana. 
We work with about 15 staff, and we work primarily through each of the local parish communities. Our ministry has evolved in different ways. We used to have a structure for the children's ministry that was much more on a parachurch level and doing children's activities and youth activities with different groups. But our experience was, and the more I talk about with people around the world, I I think it's something that happens in lots of places, is if you have dynamic children's ministry, children come and are involved as long as they're children, and then you say goodbye to them, and they are not integrated into the life of the church. And so what we've seen is that ministry to children really needs to be ministry with families. The the best way, the most effective ministry to a child is to equip their parents to disciple them. And so that means discipling the whole family. But then together with that, families, the journey of discipleship and formation for families is really in a local Eucharistic community, in a church community, because families, although it is in in Orthodoxy, we talk about the family being the little church, for it to flourish, it needs to be part of a larger church community. I think this is ever more true in our fragmented, digitalized age that we need local community where families come together. And as we strive to raise our children in Christ, that we are raising our children together with other families who are trying to raise their children to be followers of Christ. We spend time each week with our staff, training them, trying to to build capacity, praying together, fellowshiping together, planning ministry together, and then going out and partnering with the ministries in each of the, the local church communities in Tirana and in a couple of the other surrounding cities. The, the goal is to foster flourishing church communities in each of our parishes. In Albania, there's a special challenge to this because church community is something that by and large we learn by osmosis. We learn by having grown up in a church or becoming part of a church in which other people in the church have experience of living as a Christian community. In Albania in 1991, there were no functioning churches. And people have returned to church. They've had theological formation and things like that. But the whole question of actually being formed as a Christian community is a challenge. And I think this is, in Albania, it is a challenge you know, that we have an Orthodox churches, but in in all of the church communities as well, that formation of Christian community. You might wonder who Gabriella is that Nathan talked about. As so often, sadly, the call to mission is not only challenged and questioned by external opposition like politics, culture and environmental issues. The more mission stories I hear, the more I hear about personal trauma, illness and spiritual attacks. But also often these stories end in glorious displays of God's goodness and his kindness and his provision. Let's hear about Lynette's hope and the witness of her life and death. So another challenging part of our story in Albania was that in December of 2004, Lynette was diagnosed very unexpectedly. She was a fairly young woman in good health, but diagnosed with cancer, which came as a complete surprise to us. But we just felt like God has given this as our next step in our journey. Initially, the doctors told us that probably we need to go back to the States for six months and she would have surgery and chemotherapy, and she probably would be able to to return to Albania into ministry within a year or so. 
So we went back and God opened up just all sorts of doors. Her family was living in Rochester, Minnesota, right next to the Mayo Clinic. And we were able to go back and go right into the Mayo Clinic system. But very soon through the testing that they did, we found that her cancer was already metastatic and that her chances of survival were very low. So we spent about a year and a half in the United States going through all the treatment that medical science could offer her. But then in the spring of 2006, as the cancer was continuing to spread in her body, Lynette said, you know, I don't just want to spend the rest of my life here just waiting to die. And so she said, God has called us to Albania. Let's go back to Albania and continue ministry for whatever time God gives me because the doctors don't give any hope for medical treatment here really being effective. And so in the spring of 2006, we went back to Albania and God gave her about three months in Albania. And we actually didn't know it yet. The, the testing that we had done before we left the United States hadn't shown it, but she already had advanced cancer in her liver. But we had a really blessed time in Albania in which Lynette knew she was dying, but was able to testify that God is bigger than our physical death and that there is hope. And we were very blessed during that whole journey that Lynette had cancer with the response of the church around the world. It was in the early stages of the internet and things like web pages. And a friend of ours created a web page where Lynette was able to post updates on the journey and what was happening. And from that, it sort of just really spread in the early stages of internet, things like that, but spread virally. And tens of thousands of people around the world were praying for us. And we were just incredibly supported by God's family. And it, it was really interesting. Orthodox, evangelicals, Roman Catholics were all praying for Lynette. Eventually, we did find out that the cancer had spread to her, her liver and she did not have very long to live, but she spent up until about 10 days before her death. We were at girls' summer camps. The last time that she spoke to a group, she spoke to the young women at the summer camp, high school students, the summer camp that we were at, and talked with them about the process of dying as a Christian. In, in the Orthodox liturgy, we pray for a Christian end to our life painless, blameless, and peaceful. And she talked about the process of actually being able to die like that. And it was a tremendous witness to them and to many, many people. And just seeing the process of how God can heal us. And even in the process, even in the midst of physical weakness and our bodies wasting away. One of the things that Lynette said in the last couple of weeks of her life, she said, you know, I'm worried for all those thousands of people that have been praying for me around the world because they'll think that their prayers were ineffective because I'm going to die. And she said, the thing that I want them to know is that I'm dying healed. God has worked in my life and transformed me in ways that could not have happened otherwise. And of course, she didn't want to die. We had two young children on ages six and eight at the time she passed away. But she said that I'm dying healed and their prayers have been effective. So that was a really blessed journey that I was blessed to be with 
Pearl. And we had people from the United States and other places come and spend Lynette's last week with us in Albania. She said, I want to die here. This is where God has called us to. But of just journeying with her through those last days as she gradually slipped into a coma and just passed into eternity very peacefully. But singing hymns together, Lynette's family were evangelical missionaries in Africa and singers. And so we sat around her bedside and singing the great evangelical hymns, orthodox hymns, all together as one family of God walking with her to the gates of heaven. When Lynette was buried in Albania, her, her grave is there. And I had the question after that, what do I do now? I have two young kids and I'm a widow. I talked about that before her death, you know, what's what's next? And it just seemed really clear. God had called us to the work in Albania, to serving as part of the resurrection of the church there, and that I really could continue that even in, in the new situation that God had placed us in. Another part of the story is that God was planning for all of us. And as he knew that Lynette would be going home a couple years after her death, I was married again in Albania. And Gabriella was a, a young woman who had been part of our family from the time that we went to Albania, had been someone who'd been in our kids' lives um, as a babysitter and a um, co-worker in ministry. And um, after Lynette was gone, it was clear that God had already placed a person there that would be part of renewing our family. And so Gabrielle and I were married in 2008 and have been blessed to continue ministry together. We also have a third child, Daniel, who is now in eighth grade. And so God has really tremendously blessed that journey with Lynette. And God does really work all things together for good for those who love him and circumstances that the world looks at and says, this is a tragedy. God is able to heal and transform even tragedy for his kingdom and to transform us. And there is no inherent value to, to physical life if we're not also being filled with spiritual life, with life with God, and he's able to transform and heal us. So Lynette's story is actually part of a book. Our, our dear friend, Father Luke Veronis, compiled her journals during the time that she had cancer together with some other reflections from other people and things. So that book is called Lynette's Hope that's available from Ancient Faith Ministries if anybody is interested in reading more on that. Before we continue with the story, I want to let you know that we want to share mission stories from the Global Church with the Global Church. So if you have a story to share or know someone who might have, please contact us at podcast at That is podcast at For those who have been listening to God on the Move from the beginning are familiar with stories from Greece and Ethiopia. Having listened to these testimonies and also from my own experience and people I know, I thought it would be good to hear from Nathan what he thinks about the existing tensions between Orthodox and Evangelical Christians. So the first thing I would say and always say to people talking about my Christian journey is I don't feel like I converted to Orthodoxy. I am so grateful that my parents raised me in the Christian faith and taught me to love the scriptures and to, to love Christ. And my being an Orthodox Christian today, I feel, is a continuous journey from what I was raised in. I didn't take a, a U-turn when I became Orthodox. I feel that my 
parents raised me in the faith and in discovering the early history of the church and discovering the depth of the sacraments and discovering things that I've discovered in orthodoxy, there is a continuity of direction of travel and that I was able to embrace and find those things really only because I already knew Christ. And I think that we as Christians in different traditions, and I, I sort of find myself between and having lived approximately half my life as an insider in the evangelical tradition and doing advanced theological education there, but living half my life as an Orthodox Christian. And I, I went on to do a master's degree and a doctorate of ministry as an Orthodox Christian as well. So having those sides, I, I feel like there's an opportunity to see both worlds from inside, but also to see the other world from the outside. And I think that there is a great deal in both of our traditions that is beautiful and valuable, but that we often talk about our traditions with a language that is specific to the tradition, is very hard to understand from the other tradition, and that, that often we need to translate for one another of not just the words we use, even if we're both speaking English, but how we really mean and understand things. Just one simple example of that, in the evangelical tradition, when we talk about being saved by grace and salvation being apart from works, what evangelicals really mean by that usually is justified, that we are justified by grace and there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor or to earn salvation. And then they hear Orthodox talk about being saved through works and the role that works play in our lives and stuff like that. And they say that they don't understand salvation by grace and they don't understand the gospel, really. But when Orthodox use the word salvation, in general, we mean the whole process of growing in the life of God from conversion throughout eternity. And in that process, we as persons are engaged, our wills are engaged. We are active participants in growing the life of God. And of course, if we only have an abstract belief that does not engage us as persons, that doesn't engage our will, neither Orthodox or Evangelicals would really see that as a process of life with God. And so we use a word like salvation, and we're both sure we know what it means, but when it's heard from the other side and how we say it, we actually are talking about two related, but also different things. And so I would say for Orthodox and Evangelicals who are relating to one another, we need to take the time to actually understand what we mean. And we see this throughout church history, the debates in the fourth century about Christological language and different words being used or the same words being used in different ways and creating a lot of conflict, but eventually led to a way of being able to express things together. So we need to take the time to really understand each other. Another thing, evangelicals and Orthodox who have been hurt by other communities and see the pain of things that have happened. And I think that it's really important for us on both sides of the evangelical Orthodox divide to realize that the people in our communities have done sinful things and that there is plenty of sin to go around. But as in almost every walk of life, we have a great deal easier time seeing the sin of the other community and justifying the actions of our own community. And we tend to look at the, we compare the worst of the other with the best of our own. And so it's very easy to find examples of bad things that Orthodox have done and bad things that Evangelicals have done. 
But there's also ways of finding good things that are done on both sides. And I think we need to be able to see the good in one another and also strive to understand when we have been hurt, you know, maybe what was intended and, and it's not always intended to have been hurtful as it ends up being. Another aspect of that is that if you are an evangelical Christian, most of the people that you know that have had associations with orthodoxy are people that have left orthodoxy and become evangelicals. And so the stories that you hear are the stories of failure and loss and sin and brokenness of the orthodox side because you're relating to those who have, for one reason or another, come over to another community. The same thing is true within the Orthodox world. The evangelical stories that we hear as insiders in the Orthodox world are Orthodox refugees from evangelicalism. And they have stories of brokenness and pain and difficulty and things that they felt they needed to escape. But we need to realize on both sides, we're hearing the stories of the refugees, not the people who are really finding salvation in those traditions. And it's interesting, I have occasion to spend time on both sides of the divide, and I hear people on both sides describing the other side in the same way, the weaknesses of the other side in the same way, and not realizing that they're actually weaknesses of Christians. They're weaknesses of Christian communities. They're expressions of our sinfulness and brokenness, and it exists within both of our communities. Another thing that I think is helpful for us to understand is maybe as evangelicals or maybe as Orthodox, we believe that everybody should be like us, that it would be best if everybody was an evangelical or if everybody was an Orthodox. But the reality of the world that we live in is our communities will continue to exist parallel to one another. And so our choice is not whether they be or whether they not be. The choice is how are we going to relate to them in the process of our living together. And I think we can look out and say other communities that have nothing to do with Christ, is it better to relate to them in hostility or is it better to relate to them in friendship and love? We say it's always better in friendship and love. How much more for us who are trying to follow Christ? And I think that, that we need to recognize on both sides, as Orthodox Christians, we need to recognize that evangelicals are trying to follow Christ. We might think they're doing it wrong, but at least they're trying to follow Christ. And evangelicals, to give the same benefit of the doubt to Orthodox Christians, we may be doing it wrong, but we're trying to follow Jesus. And if we come with that presupposition when we meet one another, I think it helps a great deal. We are able to communicate assuming the best rather than assuming the worst. And so we can learn from one another. And this is another thing that my experience tells me living on both sides of, of these communities. We each have experiences of life with God that would be valuable to the others. For instance, I had an experience of understanding the proclamation of the gospel around the world and across cultures and across geography growing up as an evangelical that many of my Orthodox brothers just don't really understand what that's about. If we really read Orthodox theology and understand deeply, as Archbishop Anastasios, who I serve under in Albania, has pointed out, it's missions is part of the DNA of Orthodoxy. He says a church without missions is, is not a church because it's incomplete understanding of the love of Christ if we're not striving to take the gospel to, to those who don't know it. So it's part of authentic orthodoxy, but not part of orthodox practice in many ways. And we as orthodox Christians can learn something from evangelicals. Now, maybe we think they do it wrong in many ways, but at least they're trying. And to stay a long way and say, well, you're doing it all wrong is not really helpful 
if we actually build a relationship, we could actually have conversations together and say, how could we do that right? And you probably know about it, but this is one of the things that I've been really blessed to be a part of is the LOI, which is the Orthodox Evangelical Initiative. And this has been a place where we bring people together from Orthodox and Evangelical backgrounds, leaders, to meet one another and have conversations. And it's been so amazing to see when we can actually bring people together in positive contexts where they can experience one another's experience of following Christ and how amazing that is. And so often people come away and say, I just had no idea. I just really did not understand how the other saw things. And, and that's been a real blessing. We're very blessed still to be led by Archbishop Anastasios, who was sent, as I mentioned earlier, sent by the Ecumenical Patriarchate in 1991 to find out what was left. He is really a larger-than-life figure in the World Orthodox Church and beyond Orthodoxy, but of, of giving a vision for following Christ, for being people of the gospel, for being people of peace in a multi-religious community. And so we really treasure his ongoing leadership of the church. There's many interesting stories with, with the archbishop. But I was at one point when we were in relationship with other evangelicals and talking to him about relating to, to the evangelical community. And the question is, well, what is evangelical? And it's, you know, somebody who believes in conversion and a dynamic personal relationship with Jesus, somebody who believes in the scripture, the authority of the scripture and, and living under the scriptures, somebody who believes in proclaiming the gospel to the world. And Ezra says, well, we're the first evangelicals as Orthodox because we believe in all of those things. For us, that is being Orthodox. And so in that sense, evangelical is something in the authenticity of the meaning of the word and not just the denominational identity. It is what we are striving to be as Orthodox Christians in Albania. As always, there is so much more to say and to share. But before we end with how we as the Global Church can pray for Albania, I had one last question for Nathan. A few times during our conversation he mentioned Eucharistic communities. Although I had a sense of what it means, I wanted to make sure to understand it correctly. And oh, am I glad I asked. That's a term that tends to communicate more than a word like parish or local church, because those words are used in many ways and, and meaning many different things. Incidentally, this is what I, I wrote my doctoral thesis on at St. Vladimir Seminary. It's called Fostering Local Eucharistic Communities. And it's the idea that as Christians, we are called to be followers of Christ, but followers of Christ were called into community with Christ. And that for us to flourish as Christians, we are called to flourish in community with other followers of Christ. It really is extremely difficult and rare for somebody to flourish as a Christ follower independently on their own. It's not an individual sport. The two words, Eucharistic and community, very much fit together. So sometimes when people hear the idea of Eucharistic or something like that, they think only in terms of the divine liturgy, the Holy Eucharist, and think of it just in terms of liturgics and going to church, which is, of course, central. But it is much broader than that. It is a whole Eucharistic vision of life in which God placed human beings in the physical world and gave the physical world to us as the avenue for communion with Christ. 
I would very much recommend Alexander Schmemann's For the Life of the World to people who would like to look into that and think about it more, about the connection between the Eucharistic service, the divine liturgy, but the whole life in the world, that all of the world, all of our eating and drinking and living is intended by God to be communion with him. But then that's communion with him, but also in communion with his whole body, which is the church. And that you know, we are intended to be family to one another. The New Testament language about family is not an analogy, but we are truly intended that we become brothers and sisters of Christ. And all of us who are brothers and sisters of Christ are really brothers and sisters to one another and coming to live together as real family and not just family, because there's a lot of unhealthy families out there in the world around us, ever more so probably, but as healthy families living together in life where we truly are living in communion and sharing all that we do with one another and that we really come to know Christ through meeting him in one another. But that also requires that we are being formed as Christians, that we are practicing stewardship as Christians, and that we're making decisions together as a community, as well as witnessing to the world and caring for those in need. And I believe that the answer is really what we were already talking about. In the first centuries of the church, people who lived in a Roman Empire in cities where their traditional ties to one another were disrupted, and you know, all the challenges of that world were won by small Christian communities being formed and people living together and really meeting that deepest heart need that we are created in the image of the triune God for relationship with God and with one another. And as we create and foster communities where people can be invited into those kind of spaces, I don't think that most people, either in Albania or Western Europe, are won anymore by intellectual arguments about the truth of the Christian faith or many of the avenues that we used to explore, or even the traditional evangelical thing of sin and conviction, and people don't believe they're sinners anymore, but they do need to find a place of community and healing and transformation. And I think that that is what we have to offer as Christians. The Christian community, if we are really living in healthy Christian communities, is a place where broken, sinful people are invited in but invited to a process of healing and transformation. I would say to people, pray for us in Albania. And this is something that, that we can do as Christians for one another across different traditions. Even if you think we're wrong to be Orthodox, pray for us. Pray that we'll get it right. Pray that we'll figure it out. Pray that we'll be better followers of Jesus. You, know, you can't really go wrong with that, can you? I mean, pray for the flourishing of the Orthodox Church. And so I think that's the prayer for people in Albania. It's the prayer for people in North America. It's the prayer for people really around the world. It's what we would very much value people praying for us, that God would foster that. God would make it grow. And I talk about fostering local Eucharistic communities rather rather than growing them, because we can foster them. We can help create an environment in which God grows them, but it's really the work of the Holy Spirit. You've listened to God on the Move, Lausanne Movement Podcast, where we want to listen to mission stories from the global church. Through listening to what God is doing around the world, we hope to encourage and challenge the global church to faithful obedience to the Great Commission. So let's accelerate global mission together toward a vision for the gospel for every person 
disciple-making churches for every people and place, Christ-like leaders in every church and sector, and kingdom impact in every sphere of society. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, be sure to subscribe and follow us for more.